It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sunday, July 16th, 2023. I'm Ryan Schmelz. Congress is back from its summer recess, and they're picking up right where they left off. Roger Marshall, the senator from Kansas, and also uh, Ron Johnson, the senator from Wisconsin, both Republicans, saying, you know, the PGA Tour should not be held responsible for trying to survive. Other people say, well, just how far are you willing to go? You know, if you're willing to, you know, get in bed with the Saudis, and, and it's just not buying a team. I'm Jared Halpern. Live free and vote first. New Hampshire is fighting to keep its place on the presidential primary calendar. New Hampshire is a place where anybody that has the dream of becoming president can try and make it happen because you don't need high name recognition and you don't need a lot of money to run a campaign here. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Many Americans, including those in the United States Congress, may have enjoyed some golf over the 4th of July holiday, and even though Congress is back in session, the game was still getting plenty of attention. That's because a merger between the PGA Tour and Saudi-backed Live Golf Tour had some members yelling for. If it's all about the money and sports washing, cleansing public image, gaining reputation, other autocratic repressive regimes could do exactly the same kind of disruptive interference and takeover. Senator Richard Blumenthal, Saudi Arabia is currently doing business with World Wrestling Entertainment, and when FBI Director Christopher Wray appeared before Congress, fielding a series of questions surrounding bias within the FBI and the investigation into Hunter Biden, some GOP members, like Matt Gates, came ready to bring a verbal smackdown. Are you protecting the Bidens? Absolutely not. The FBI well, does not the has no oh, interest in You won't answer the question about whether or not that's a shakedown. Hearings aside, Congress has a lot to get done over the next few weeks, including setting the military's budget through the National Defense Authorization Act, which has resulted in some debate within the parties. One caucus in particular, the conservative House Freedom Caucus, figures to be a major player, but it'll reportedly be moving forward without one of its most outspoken members, Marjorie Taylor Greene. I was told on the you know end of the week that Thursday or Friday when they were out that they had voted to kick her out of that caucus. Fox's senior congressional correspondent, Chad Pergram. And was told by multiple members that she was done, that there was a vote. And then you had no statement, nobody confirming on the record that it was officially what had happened. I mean, nobody really could could track this down. It was very mysterious. And then, uh, you know, I talked to a couple of members, uh, you know, this week when they've come back to session and said, well, you know, is she in or is she out? Was there something that modified this? People were very cryptic. They said, you know, we don't have to talk to you about this. I had one member off the record, basically on background, who I was talking with, who said, we want transparency in government, but we don't have to be transparent in our dealings. 
in the Freedom Caucus, which, of course, as you well know, Ryan, is the one of the biggest points that they make, you know, you know, understanding what government agencies are doing and withholding information from Congress, but they don't want to do that. You know, so it sounds like, you know, frankly, two sets of rules. Regardless, I think it's pretty safe to say that she is not in the Freedom Caucus. We found out from Andy Harris at the very end of the break. Now, he is a Republican from Maryland, represents the eastern uh, shore area and kind yep. of an area north northeast of Baltimore, where he had presided over a pro forma session. They meet in these abbreviated sessions during the recess. And he basically said, yeah, we voted to kick her out, but then didn't elaborate too much more on that. You know, it seemed to be, and if you can't actually confirm 100 percent that they, they kicked her out, what we've divined, I guess, Ryan, is that they didn't like her aligning too much with Kevin McCarthy. They thought that she was, you know, pretty outspoken on a few other issues, which kind of rubbed them the wrong way. And the other thing was kind of this argument on the floor with uh, Lauren Boebert, the Republican from Colorado, and they exchanged words. It was a pretty fierce verbal argument uh, with Marjorie Taylor Greene basically confirming later that she called uh, uh, Lauren Boebert a little blank on the floor. Not exactly the, the best decorum on the House floor, perhaps. But but I think that's what kind of pushed it over over the edge there. So she is not a member of the Freedom Caucus and Democrats have taken this. And run down the field saying that even Marjorie Taylor Greene is not conservative enough for the Freedom Caucus. Uh, they're making a lot of light of that. And this relationship between Marjorie Taylor Greene and Boebert, yeah, I think a lot of people assume because they are in the Freedom Caucus and they kind of came up together in Congress that they have this really close relationship. But I believe that's very far from the truth and that this tension between them has kind of been boiling for some time. Is that right? Well, it seems to be a little bit of a rivalry where you had Lauren Boebert being called out by Marjorie Taylor Greene over basically taking her idea on impeachment. Marjorie Taylor Greene has a list, a laundry list of people who she'd like to impeach. The president, the secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, the FBI director, Christopher Wray, certainly uh, Merrick Garland, the attorney general, the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia. I mean, it's a pretty extensive list. And so Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, she has gotten a little more close with Kevin McCarthy and you've seen kind of a, a transmogrification of her a little bit, doing things more by the book here on Capitol Hill, not as willing to jump out and be maybe as brash as she was when she first arrived. And then you had Lauren Boebert, who suddenly is getting, you know, bigfooted by this process. And so she came up with a resolution, a privileged resolution to impeach the president. No committees. No debate. And you can put such a resolution on the floor and it just kind of magically happens. And if the House votes to impeach you, you are impeached. And so what they did is they voted to refer that to two committees, the Homeland Security Committee and also because it was deals with the border and the Judiciary Committee because the Judiciary Committee deals with all uh, impeachments. And this was a, an area of tension that Lauren Boebert had kind of, you know, put the cart before the horse, had, according to Green, kind of stolen her idea. So there's a lot of infighting here on Capitol Hill between those two. And, and I think it's kind of natural. I mean, I remember very early in you know their first term where they held a press conference about impeachments, certainly for President Biden, just a couple of months after he was in. And, and it was certainly interesting that Marjorie Taylor Greene at that press conference, she was more dominant. And again, this is, you know, two and a half years ago, was a little more assertive in that press conference. In fact, Dana Milbank, who's a columnist for The Washington Post, wrote a, a piece about that press conference and talked about that, you know, Lauren Boebert could do is aspire to be, according to Milbank, like Marjorie Taylor Greene and kind of, you know, stand in the shadow of the master. And so if we can move on to some other, you know, kind of 
feisty moments that were going on on Capitol Hill. We had Christopher Ray, the FBI director, testifying uh, before the House Judiciary Committee this week. Did we learn anything from that that we didn't already know? We did. And what we learned is that, uh, you know, the uh, you know, FBI director, uh, this is not kind of a sacred, uh, you know, spot anymore. Um, that Republicans, uh, obviously, they have weaponized government. Uh, they say the government is out to get you. They think that Christopher Ray is kind of one of those persons that's at the head of this, never mind that he was nominated by former President Trump, a Republican, and confirmed by then a Republican Senate. And so they went after him on a host of issues about um, school boards and also the Hunter Biden investigation and whether or not they were giving the Bidens special treatment. I mean, it just went on and on in that sense. And so uh, this is where you've had some people, and this is not what they were speaking about directly, but Barry Black who is the Senate chaplain. He's been the Senate chaplain for 20 years. And, you know, he's talked about this thing. You know, we should not be weaponizing those who work in government. You know, you had alluded to here, Ryan, before we we got on the air that, uh, you know, Ken Buck, you know, who is a member of the Freedom Caucus, a Republican, very conservative, actually kind of thanked him for his service. But, you know, it seemed as though Chris Ray came prepared for this hearing. There was an exchange with Matt Gates, who went for the jugular. The Republican congressman from Florida went right at Christopher Ray and criticized the FBI and its tactics. And Ray turned this right back around on Matt Gates saying, look, you know, we've had an increase in the number of applicants from your district and your home state, you know, to, to come work for this. So if we're so bad, why are they coming to us to, and want to work for us? I mean, you know, so so there was a level of preparation on kind of the uh, kabuki dance and the verbal jousting uh, that we haven't really seen. And this was the first time that he had appeared before the Republican-led House. Uh, This is something that's pretty common. They do this, you know, a a couple of times at Congress where you have different cabinet heads or agency official heads come up and testify for an oversight hearing. Uh, That was just, uh, you know, that type of hearing, only it was done on steroids. And I believe that number Ray used in response to Gates was a hundred percent increase in applicants from Florida. Yeah, geometric. Uh, yeah. And I think a lot of Democrats and Ken Buck also pointed this out too. You know, and you alluded to this as well. Ray was appointed by former President Trump. He is still a registered Republican, as he confirmed in the hearing. But also, I think one thing, Chad, that's fascinating about this is that you know, if we can go back in time to when Christopher Ray was appointed to that position by Trump, and somebody told you back then that fast forward a few years and this is the type of hearing we'd have him being involved in, would you have believed them? Yes, I would have, uh, because uh, we're in the post-Trump era right now. And this is something that we've seen happen in politics where uh, there are attacks on individuals, whether they deserve it or not. And I'm not defending Christopher Ray here, uh, but just the idea that they go after these individuals in these hearings. It's not so much about oversight. It's about personalities. It's about trying to settle scores. It's about trying to get uh, a soundbite on, on social media. And uh, even if you were appointed uh, by former President Trump, it doesn't matter, uh, even if these people are aligned with uh, former President Trump still. Uh, simply because look at how he burned through so many cabinet officials and how many people that former President Trump you know, said we're only going to hire the best people and how many people has he dismissed or you know, called names or whatever else. And so we're seeing an extension of that into the politics here on Capitol Hill and the way some of these people, even though they might have been aligned with the former president, I'm not sure that Christopher Ray was aligned with the former president, but he was certainly, as we said, nominated by the former president, that they go after them. As someone said to me, you know, back during the Trump years, I'm having trouble keeping track of who we're supposed to hate today. 
How does this play into the fact that the FBI is asking for a lot of money from Congress, not just to approve their budget as we get into appropriations, but also they're asking for a new headquarters? Yeah, that new headquarters, and this is very interesting, that uh, they have a, a building built in the brutalist style in downtown Washington, D.C., which a lot of people think is the ugliest building in Washington. They want to move it to suburban Maryland. Uh, the, you know, There's a whole you know pitch to get this out into the suburbs, have a better facility. There's also a pitch to move this into uh, Huntsville, Alabama. Now, here's a question I have. If these Republicans are so against the FBI, why do they want it in Alabama? Are they are they then going to applaud the jobs that it brings and the construction jobs to build that facility? I thought they didn't like the FBI. And, and the answer we always hear is that they like the rank and file FBI people, but they don't like the leadership. OK, fine. And that's where you have people. Again, we're back to our friend Marjorie Taylor Greene saying maybe we should impeach him. And this is where Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, had to have a meeting just this week with uh, many of his members to kind of give a, a status report on where they were with investigations, but also to kind of moderate expectations. If you're going to impeach somebody, let's follow the facts. Let's just not put a resolution on the floor like Boebert did, because that would be political. We want to do something by the book. If Ray or anybody else really should be impeached, we're going to do it by the book. And I found it very interesting that that meeting was sparsely attended. Uh, Boebert was not there. In fact, a few weeks ago, when Boebert was asked, you know, to come and make a case before the conference on, on the impeachment, she didn't show up. And when I interviewed her later, she said she didn't have the time. It wasn't important to, enough to do that. So this is where you're having this internal struggle. And this is maybe where Republicans in the House might have gotten a little bit over the tips of their skis. The reason being is that they go out and talk about impeachment or we're going to stick it to these Biden officials or we're going to get to the bottom. And then if they don't produce any scalps, at what point does that train run out of track? Uh, do people come back and say, you know, you talk a good game. And this is what Lauren Boebert said to me. She said in the interview I did with her, you know, in late June, that a lot of members talk a good game about impeachment. If you really feel that way about impeachment, put your money where your mouth is and vote on this resolution. Well, they didn't because obviously the president has not been impeached. And that's why it's so hard to get Christopher Ray and everybody else. And at some point, you know, is that dam going to break? There's only so many times and only so many ways that Kevin McCarthy can finesse this. I mean, if they were to put a resolution to impeach the president on the floor right now, that would not pass. And everybody here knows it. And some of it's because it's a four seat majority. But you have these ultra conservatives in these very red pro-Trump aligned districts who they want all of this and that's all their constituents talk to them about. And so they have to, you know, prove something. But if they can't, you know, actually get something done in Washington, who do they blame? The Speaker of the House? Now we're back to the reason why it took 15 rounds to elect Kevin McCarthy as Speaker. Now, moving on to the Live Tour and the PGA Tour, both are pretty much appearing before Capitol Hill. Live Tour not involved, but we had officials from the PGA Tour who they asked speaking. Live Golf to appear. Yeah, they, they, right. they wanted yes. uh, Greg Norman, the shark, who founded Live Golf to testify. He, he wouldn't come. But we have this person who's kind of at the front of this, and his name is Jimmy Dunn. Can you kind of give us some background on who he is and why he was such a major player in this deal and also in terms of this hearing? Yeah, Jimmy Dunn is somebody who is a member of the PGA Tour board. And very interesting background here on, on Jimmy Dunn. He was one of the two witnesses who testified on behalf of the PGA at this Senate hearing here. They wanted Jay Monahan, who is the CEO of the PGA Tour, to come, but he's been on medical leave. But he worked actually at the World Trade Center. His firm, Sandler O'Neill & Partners, was headquartered on the 104th floor of the South Tower. 
That firm on 9-11 lost 68 employees. Jimmy Dunn is still with us. The reason is that he was playing golf on 9-11. He was attempting to qualify for the U.S. Mid-Amateur Open, and so he survived. Well, why you have all the 9-11 families so upset here, and this is where I talked to Terry Strada, whose uh, husband died in, in the North Tower four days after she gave birth uh, to uh, their third child. She believes that Jimmy Dunn has betrayed the 9-11 families. The reason is that he basically negotiated this deal between the PGA Tour and Live Golf, which is backed by the Saudis. And the level of enmity here that some of the 9-11 families have for this deal, and now specifically for Jimmy Dunn, is off the chart. I mean, they feel that, you know, he really threw them under the bus after what they've been through. Terry Strada, who said she was a, a golf fan, in fact, her late husband who died on 9-11 was a scratch golfer, and she said, I, I couldn't sit down and watch a, a tour now, a, a, an event on TV. I, I, it would take all the fun out of golf that I enjoy. And so, uh, you know, this came out of the middle of nowhere. I have some sources who they were up here basically talking to members of Congress in the spring, discussing how, you know, PGA Tour, you know, they were so glad that they didn't have to talk about these human rights abuses and arrests of dissidents in Saudi Arabia and prosecuting the war in Yemen. And then all of a sudden, like somebody flipped a, a light switch, they announced this deal that they have a framework with Live Golf. And so people keep asking, what at what moment did this change? And Richard Blumenthal, who is the Democratic senator from Connecticut who led the hearing, he has a document which indicates that these conversations go back as far back as early December of last year. And so the fact that they were keeping this even from their actual people, you know, there was an exchange between Ron Price, who's a PGA Tour official and Blumenthal, where he said, you know, did you guys talk to any of the players about this? And he said, well, no, no, none of them really knew. And Blumenthal nearly lost it. He said, you are an organization that's driven by your members. Your members are your players and you didn't even tell them. So this is not the last we've heard of this. Jimmy Dunn was pretty adamant that one of the reasons why they made this agreement was because Live Tour had a lot of money and they were eating up players left and right. And if they didn't make the make this agreement, PGA Tour could have been threatened and Live could have became the, the ultimate pretty much promotion in golf. Did the yes. arguments that they were making like that one sway any minds there or is everyone still kind of where they were before going into the hearing? Well, this is where you had Roger Marshall, the senator from Kansas, and also uh, Ron Johnson, the senator from Wisconsin, both Republicans, saying, you know, the PGA Tour should not be held responsible for trying to survive. Other people say, well, just how far are you willing to go? You know, if you're willing to, you know, get in bed with the Saudis. And, and it's just not buying a team. You know, they bought a team, uh, the uh, the Saudis did in the Premier League. You know, you're basically taking over an entire sport. And he said when they have an unlimited amount of money, and this is both Ron Price and, and also Jimmy Dunn testifying at the hearing, and they say that you have an unlimited amount of money, which is what the Saudis have, then you know, the sky's the limit. And the intimation is what's next, the NFL, the NBA, you know, I mean, you see where this potentially could go. And the reason some find it so offensive, the 9-11 families, because of the Saudi involvement in 9-11, the term that Blumenthal kept using is sports washing. Uh, the idea that we're going to, you know, participate on this, you know, level with sports and everybody's going to be hunky-dory and it's all about the competition and everything else. But what we're doing behind the scenes, you wind up like Jamal Khashoggi, you know, who was murdered a couple of years ago at the hand of the Saudis. So these are the questions that lawmakers have. 
this is the controversy that we have. But frankly, I mean, there was no way that the PGA Tour could compete with this. I mean, they said that if they lost, say, five players a year, that they would gut the PGA because you've had these players defecting to live golf because they are paying them astronomical amounts of money in order to go over and play there. And frankly, if you put aside the human rights issues and everything else, who wouldn't go for that type of money? And I think one thing that's underreported about this, Chad, is that this really isn't the first time the Saudis have dipped their feet into American sports. You know, you have WWE, which is the company that the former small business administrator, uh, her husband runs WWE, Vince McMahon. I think a lot of people will know who that is. You know, WWE's been doing shows in Saudi Arabia and cashing in quite substantially on that. And some wrestlers have actually protested and not traveled over there when they've done those shows. But then there was also the rumor that uh, Saudi Arabia was considering purchasing WWE when it was up for sale. So this doesn't seem to be the first time that Saudi Arabia has you know, really tried to get its feet into American sports. But also, do we have any you know, recollection of a foreign power like this really being this aggressive with American sports the way Saudi has? Well, you know, I have to go back and, and say I talked about what happened in the Premier League with, you know, one of the teams now owned by the Saudis there. You have to go back and look and say maybe we can't truly separate politics from sports. Uh, we like to think that we can, but we can't. I mean, look at the 1936 Olympics. Look at the 1980 Olympics, where the United States decided not to go because, you know, there was a Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and the Soviets returned the favor when the summer games were held in Los Angeles in 1984. Or look at what happened at the 1972 Olympics in Munich with the murder of the Israeli athletes. I mean, this goes on and on. Talk about China and and the NBA right now. Just yes, exactly. And even just, you know, playing the games in China, the Winter Olympics a couple of years ago. So this is not new, you know, sports and politics. This is just another flavor of this. And it's probably another flavor that we're going to see in the the coming years. The NDAA was a big story on the Hill this week. It appears to be some of the issues moving forward with Congress in this is the amendments that are being proposed by both Republicans and Democrats here. Uh, A couple issues that stand out, abortion and Ukraine funding. Is there anyone in particular that you're following that stands out that we probably should talk about? Well, I think the abortion issue is key because, you know, this has been something that we had Nancy Mace, the Republican congresswoman from South Carolina, say, you know, we said right after the Roe decision, we're not going to you know, go after women traveling across state lines to get abortions. The Pentagon made its own policy. There are people who want to reverse that. In fact, let's put aside the House bill for just a second here and look at what's been going on in the United States Senate, where you have Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville from Alabama, who has blocked the promotion of all, A-L-L, all promotions of all senior military flag officers across the board, There's a reason why the Marines don't have a commandant right now, uh, because of this policy. And some of the Republican senators are starting to even lose their patience with Senator Tuberville. They talk about readiness. They talk about having confidence. You know, if you're a senior person and you have kids in school and you have to sell a house and you have to move and do all these things. And Tuberville comes out and says, well, you you know, they've told me that they're all willing to do what they need for their their country. Well, you know, they are. They probably will. These senior military officers, there's a reason why they got to those positions. But, you know, the hardship on their families. And I think that's what's starting to wear on some of the Republican senators who don't like the policy. Obviously, they are pro-life. They agree with the Dobbs decision. 
at the Supreme Court last year, but they don't know that this is the best way to go about it. In fact, uh, Senator John Cornyn, Republican from Texas, said as much uh, just the other day. And I think what's interesting about this is this is the exact opposite stance that Nancy Mace has on the policy where she feels it is just a terrible decision for them to be uh, attacking this policy. And she's even tried to clarify saying this, you know, reimburses women for travel if they go out of state for an abortion service, not exactly paying for the abortion procedure itself. But I think one other thing that kind of stands out about the abortion debate, uh, particularly with uh, Senator Tuberville, is that. One of the legal arguments he's making here is that this policy is something that needs to be enacted by Congress. Mm -hmm. It's not something the president can just institute into the Department of Defense policy. But if somehow this policy were to survive the NDA and be actually included in the text, technically that would kind of solve that legal issue Tuberville's been arguing, right? Right. Uh, but, but you know, at, at what point do you say, you know, all agencies, even one as big as the Pentagon, they make rules about things all the time, you know, because they have to run a run a show. So that's what they have to do. And so at what point do you say, well, you know, this rule or that rule, you know, that they can't really do that because it has to be legislated by Congress. And I get the logic in that. But the practicality is very hard. Now, granted, we're talking about a white hot issue here, abortion. So I get some of that. But, uh, you know, that's an issue that uh, is not resolved right now between Senator Tuberville and his colleagues. And in fact, you know, to be clear, the mechanics, I I want to walk through the mechanics on this, uh, Ryan, just real quick. What he's able to do, what they usually do when they have somebody up for for a promotion, they do a bunch of them at once because they vetted these people. These people have been rising in their careers anyway. And we're talking about the top 200 or so military officers in the country. Okay, so these people are well known unless something has come up about their history of late where it's inappropriate for them. They don't have a problem with this promotion. The Senate has to confirm it. And so what Tuberville is requiring that they do is by the book. In other words, you have to bring up each nomination, each promotion, I should say, individually, consider it individually. That burns time off the clock with all of these promotions, according to Jack Reed, the Democratic senator from Rhode Island, who's the chair of the Armed Services Committee in the Senate. If the Senate worked around the clock and did nothing else, and I mean nothing else, and I mean vote after vote after vote, bang, 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 which is not really how the Senate operates, that would take 27 consecutive days. If you did it eight hours a day, it would take somewhere in the neighborhood of 84 days. The coin of the realm in the Senate is floor time. And let's say you get into that 84-day scenario. Well, then you're not doing other pieces of legislation. You're not considering other nominations for other cabinet agencies. We have to fund the government by September 30th. So that's just not practical. I mean, he, I mean, he can hold this up, but he, and he's making the Senate you know, jump through all of these parliamentary hurdles on each individual nomination, which the Senate just never does it that way. I mean, it's a it's a senatorial uh, courtesy, as they say up here, because they do it. They do it called unanimous consent is what they call. So everybody kind of agrees. And even if you're going to vote no and you can vote no, you still let the nomination come to the floor. And this is where Democrats, from one perspective, have started to say if Republicans and certainly Senator Tuberville are really all about you know, national security, then show it. Uh, Don't be holding up uh, the top promotions in the military when we need to deal with Russia and Ukraine and China. Some of what I've been told is that um, there are Republicans who are open to considering a roll call vote for C.Q. Brown, who's the 
chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff nominee, but they're not quite sure if, if every Republican's going to be on board with breaking precedent in order to get to that. But is there anything else we're missing, Chad, that we need to add? Well, I tell you, the next big thing, can they fund the government in, uh, in September? And that will be the next challenge for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Chad, really great stuff. We appreciate your time and thank you. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on Outkick.com forward slash watch. New Hampshire has produced just one president, technically. Franklin Pierce is the sole occupant of the Oval Office to be born in the live free or die state. But ask a New Hampshire voter, they may tell you the state has propelled many more to the highest office in the land. Since 1920, New Hampshire has been the first primary on the presidential nominating calendar, a status guarded and defended by a state law that says the presidential primary shall be held on the second Tuesday of March or at least seven days before any other primary. For decades, that has meant holding the primary as early as January. This cycle, the state is facing a challenge to its status by the Democratic National Committee. A new calendar approved by the DNC makes New Hampshire second in line after South Carolina's primary and on the same day is the Nevada caucuses. New Hampshire could certainly hold its primary out of order, but with that could come the threat of sanctions like losing delegates or even having the incumbent President Biden opt not to compete. The state's top election official, Secretary of State David Scanlon, says he's up to the task of defending his state's status. It seems like the primaries keep creeping earlier and earlier every year. In fact, a few elections back, we got up to the very beginning of January, and then uh, there was kind of a reset, Mm -hmm. and everybody moved their schedules back. But yes, our law says that we should go at least seven days before any similar event. And that law can't be amended because Democrats want to change the schedule? Well, the the law can always be amended, uh, but the legislators in New Hampshire uh, have had no desire to do that. I mean, it it does beg the question about, you know, why you're so territorial about this thing. The the Democrat, the DNC has made some compelling arguments, have they not, to sort of branch out the the primary process and and give other regions and other states maybe a chance at, at going first? Are they wrong? Yes. (laughs) They're wrong. And and the reason that they are wrong, first of all, New Hampshire uh, has in the 2020 presidential primary election celebrated the 100th anniversary of its first in the nation status. But the reason why the New Hampshire primary is important is not because of what the other states are claiming that we're too white. I mean, we are we're you know, we are ethnically a white state, and we don't uh, we don't argue that fact. But the reason why New Hampshire is really important is because it is a small state geographically. It is a small state population-wise, about 1.4 million people. But it is a state where it is very easy to get on the ballot. A person has to sign the Declaration of Candidacy, acknowledging that they meet the constitutional requirements to be president and they pay a $1,000 filing fee. Beyond that, New Hampshire has one statewide television station. They have one statewide newspaper. And then there are regional uh, media outlets that uh, come in 
uh, either in New Hampshire or from some of the surrounding states. But New Hampshire is a place where anybody that has the dream of becoming president can try and make it happen because you don't need high name recognition and you don't need a lot of money to run a campaign here. And so uh, whenever we have an open primary where there's no incumbent running, it is not unusual for New Hampshire to have 40 names of candidates mm -hmm. on the ballot for a party presidential primary. And so in some respects, you know, it, it, it's kind of like American Idol. If, if you're <laughs> if people watch that show, it, you know, it's an audition state. And if mm -hmm. you think you have what it takes, you can give it a shot. And if you don't have it, you know, you get tossed aside pretty quickly. But it does give an opportunity for other people that have the skills and the talent to move on. You mentioned sort of the open primary versus not. And obviously, we're talking about two different scenarios here when you look at the Republican primary versus the Democratic primary for, for president next year. Would that lend itself to the possibility of, of hosting those primaries apart from one another? No, our state law requires the state to conduct the primary and the primary for both parties is held on the same day. I ask that because obviously, if you move forward with hosting it first in the nation, um, the DNC could sanction the state, right? The DNC could strip delegates. It, it could ban candidates from taking part in forums or debates. And there's a lot of things that the DNC could do, right? And I guess my question is, is that risk worth it to keep the first in the nation status? That, that has never phased us in the past. And we have been in this situation before, although, you know, the, the challenge to us may not have been as great. But uh, we have held primaries where uh, candidates were penalized in the number of delegates that they could accept. Uh, mm -hmm. In those situations, the, the delegates that were denied showed up at the convention anyway, and they ended up being seated. Uh, I don't know that that would be the case this time around, but New Hampshire is not afraid of being penalized by holding the first in the nation primary outside of the DNC rules. I mean, it's entirely possible that President Biden could decide not to be on the ballot in in New Hampshire. Wouldn't that kind of undermine the whole point of the primary? Well, that's yet to be seen. We have two candidates that are actively campaigning in the state, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. Mm -hmm. and Marianne Williamson. Uh, and they are attending a lot of campaign events and people are listening to them. And uh, there are other candidates uh, that are uh, well known that are on the periphery, just kind of waiting and seeing what develops in New Hampshire. So we may end up with just two candidates, uh, Kennedy Jr. and, and uh, Williamson, along with some lesser known candidates. But if that's the way the uh, ballot shakes out, uh, you know, that's what we're going to run with. With the state law being what it is, is there a possibility that you would share that date with another state? I know one of the ideas that has been floated out there, and it's not the current DNC rule, to be sure, but this idea that perhaps there's a rotation or kind of these regional primaries. You have one in the Northeast, you have one out West, maybe you have one in the South, maybe you have one in the Midwest, and, and all of those are held the same day to kind of build up a little bit more uh, nationwide test for, for each candidate. Is that something that New Hampshire would accept? No. Um, again, it comes back to giving an opportunity to run for president to the small guy, the guy that, you know, the candidate that does not have financial resources, the candidate that does not have name recognition. And anytime you create a regional primary or a national primary, you have eliminated a large number of candidates from the field just because 
uh, they don't have the resources and you limit it to those individuals that are well-financed or have high name recognition. And, you know, if, if, if we want to have elections where the voters have a choice and give it and, and attempt to give everybody an opportunity to compete for that job, then you have to start somewhere and, and you should start in a place like New Hampshire that makes it easy to participate in that process. Do you think Democrats could pay a price electorally in your state for these types of moves? That's yet to be seen, but I know that there are a lot of Democratic voters in New Hampshire that are not happy with the current situation. Let me finish with this. Is this the greatest threat that your primary has faced? It's right up there, yes. Did it catch you by surprise? I mean, this is something that's kind of been talked about for, this isn't the first time that folks said, you know, maybe we need to look away from New Hampshire to your earlier point, the criticisms that... You know, it, it's not real diverse. It's not real large. There's not a lot of big cities. Uh, so why is this different? <laughs> well, New Hampshire gets a lot of attention and they get a lot mm -hmm. of notoriety uh, and, and people pay attention to what happens here. And that's nice to have. And I can certainly understand that there are other states that would like to share in that attention and uh, and be a part of the early process in, process in candidate selection. But New Hampshire has crafted it really to a science. It, it, it really is part of our identity and part of our culture here. Um, you know, other parts of the, st of the country have landmarks or uh, events that make them noteworthy, whether it's a big sporting event or a big national monument or something like that. But when people think of New Hampshire, uh, they think of the first of the nation primary, and it, it, it is a big deal here. But it's only a big deal because of the opportunity that it gives to the candidates that want to uh, try it out. And there are many uh, uh, comments from candidates in the past that have experienced the process of campaigning in New Hampshire. And and they say that it, it, the, the process here actually made them a better candidate and prepared them for what lied ahead uh, down the road. And, uh, you know, there were there may be some other states that could duplicate what happens here, but it could not be duplicated in other states. I will say that I've enjoyed all of my visits uh, chasing candidates up in, in New Hampshire, certainly uh very knowledgeable voters up there in, in a beautiful state just uh, to drive through as well. So I wish you the best of luck uh, as you start planning out uh, next year's calendar, and we'll be in touch, sir. Thank you very much. It sounds great. That will do it for this edition of the Fox News Rundown from Washington podcast. Next week, Israel's President Isaac Herzog visits Washington for a meeting with President Biden and to make an address to Congress. His visit comes as the Biden administration tries to balance cooperation and friendship with the longtime ally with growing concerns about a judicial reform movement and settlement expansion in the West Bank. And Herzog's visit is also showing fractures among Democrats, with several lawmakers expected to boycott. We'll talk about the politics and the policy. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.